Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we find out why the International Association representing more than 200 airlines is sounding the alarm about long waits for passengers at major Canadian airports and what they think should be done about it. We talk comedy and the Just for Laughs Vancouver Festival with comedian, actor, writer Dana Gould and ask about what it's like to be back in front of a live audience after a few years away. We speak to the head of the Pulitzer Prize winning opinion team at the Houston Chronicle about the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas that killed 19 kids and two teachers and the ongoing and divisive fight there over how to stop it from happening again. But first, it was a year ago this week that Tecumlips cookpie Roseanne Casimir revealed the discovery of 215 graves of children on the grounds of the former Kamloops Residential School, sending shockwaves across the country and around the world. We speak to her about the year that's passed and what she hopes lies ahead. Well, it's been a year now since the announcement of that shocking discovery in Kamloops that shed new light on the horror of Canada's residential school past. I remember being at work when it was announced late that Thursday, early Friday morning, people were reacting. It caused such consternation, even though we knew about these numbers, but they've been reported before that there'd been deaths at residential schools. But this number, 215, uh, announced by Cookby Roseanne Casimir uh, that day, the former at the former Kamloops Indian Residential School, uh, the remains of 215 kids, some as young as three, really hit home. Here is Cookby Casimir announcing that a year ago. This is really going to be hitting home to a lot of our people. Like these are children and, and it is devastating to, you know, be bringing this up. They were saying that from what they can tell and from the size, you know, they're as little as, you know, like potentially like three years old. I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm an auntie. And, you know, and the impact that it's had on our council to be able to, you know, like going through this and knowing that, you know, we have to share this, you know, not only with our membership, but every single level. Well, that was Cookby Roseanne Casimir of the Tecumlips uh, Tesquima uh, Nation a year ago, announcing the discovery of those 215 children, uh, the graves of, at that residential school. Well, on Monday this week, there was a somber ceremony to mark one year since the discovery, not the announcement, but the discovery. Um, the community had mourned for a traditional one-year period. Monday, they welcomed visitors from around the country, including the Prime Minister, uh, to join them in a memorial for the ones who never made it home. Uh, there were prayers. There was a sunrise ceremony. Um, Kupi Kazmir thanked the community as well and political Indigenous partners and organizations for all their support over the past year. Uh, there was also a minute of silence at 2.15 p.m. to mark the 215 graves that were found. Well, it has been a year full of uh, accomplishments, sadness, healing, uh, and certainly a lot of attention, a lot of condolences, and a lot of talk. Um, but how much action? Joining me now for more on the anniversary, the year past, and what lies ahead is to come lips Cookby, Roseanne Casimir. Thank you so much for your time tonight. For sure. Well, thank you for having me. We are dealing with, uh, I, I want to I'm going to ask you, obviously, about just the, the one-year anniversary and all that's happened this week, but I wanted to, to first start with, with just asking you about what's happened in Texas, because we're seeing the faces of, of small children, again, uh, who've lost their lives uh, through no doing of their own. And just as a mom and as a community leader, I was, I was wondering what, what, uh, how that impacted you. Hearing the news about what happened to the children in Texas was absolutely devastating. And to think that those children 
you know, are going to live their lives to the fullest potential. And those children are not going back to the homes and the parents are not going to have those children coming home to them. It is truly, truly devastating. And I just want to express my sincere, sincere condolences and, you know, to everyone and that the creator is truly with each and every single one of those family members and with those children on this next journey and their lives are cut too, too short. It's truly devastating. I imagine for, for the community too, when you've spent the last year really talking about trying to come to terms with to some extent, I know this was something that had been known within the community for a long time, but the public process of grieving for these young lives lost in your community over the many, 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 many years, uh, it must hit home when you see other children suffer the same fate. It truly hits home to see other children, you know, have that happen to their lives and to you know, reflect on what happened here at the Kamos de Shwetmuk and to all First Nations right across the nation who've been impacted from residential school. Those loss of lives and those children that aren't going to be returning home is truly devastating and, you know, is definitely re-triggering and um, sincere condolences. And um, when I look at here, you know, just knowing that just one year after um you know, the findings that have been shared with us of the unmarred graves and, you know, how much grieving, loss, trauma, pain, tears, it's, it's devastating. So, you know, for all the families and to know that we stand with you as well and in solidarity and that we too are also grieving with you and that um, we feel that pain. You mentioned the last year, and I was thinking back to when I first saw the announcement, um, probably just a little less than a year ago, but you had known already for a few days that this was coming. Um, did you have any inkling that the reaction would be so, so widespread and so absolutely um, shocked, I guess would be the right word, that, that the people around the country were so shocked by what it is that you had found, what it is that you shared. So when we made the announcement, I had no idea. I was actually in shock myself as to what I was going to be sharing with the world and sharing with our community and sharing with all the um, communities that have been impacted from the Kellis Indian Residential School. So knowing that um, that was going to be shared, I had no idea. And all I can say is just how truly, truly appreciative, you know, I am of that solidarity and support of all those that grieved with us and all those that came up to support, you know, us during this traumatic time. And, you know, for us, it was our elders, our survivors, they've always known those truths. And for them, it was, it was like, it was the first time that people truly were hearing what was happening. And I think the, the, the biggest impact was the fact that they were children. When you look back now, I know you had the memorial or the, or the, the event to, to, to honor the anniversary on Monday. When you look back at the past year now, uh, what have you been 
what do you look back at with, with happiness to some extent? And happiness is probably the wrong word. Or what do you look back at and think, I'm happy that happened? And what are you still looking back on thinking not enough is being done? When I look back at this year, last year, you know, we, we, we know that we just came here together on May 23rd, you know, to honor and to reflect this past year, the first anniversary of the Liz Way. And that's what we call the missing, the children who did not come home. So for us, it was reflecting on, you know, the pain and the trauma. And for many, the impact of a Band-Aid being ripped from the old wound, you know, from so many of our elders and our survivors that are still with us. And it was also about today having that opportunity, you know, to truly start to truly, I guess, to honor and to continue giving them the dignity and also looking at, you know, the reflections from the past year. And it was about expressing gratitude for all those who um, supported us along the way and, you know, looking, you know, forward we see all the steps that still need to take place towards healing. And that is probably the biggest one. It's healing. And all those that are wanting to be um, on those steps towards reconciliation, reconciling the past to, to now and to finally having their truths believed, and that moving forward, it's about making sure that nothing like this ever happens again and making sure that we continue to educate others, to educate our children and for our survivors to continue having that hope that uh, moving forward, that um, people have a better understanding and that people um, understand the real trauma, the real history that was behind the residential school system. Because there have been other discoveries throughout the year, right? I mean, the, the, you, the, the discoveries at the Kamloops Residential School was simply the first, the beginning of, of, of the retelling of a story that was already well known, as you pointed out. These are stories that had been shared in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But it, this, is, this continues, the, the pain and the healing, I suspect, continues across the country at, in different communities. The pain definitely is still continuing right across, um, we call Turtle Island, we call Canada, we call First Nation communities that have been impacted with um, residential schools and Indian hospitals within their areas. And we know that for, you know, there are quite a few communities who've um, started to do the work to, to find answers to the children that they know that did not come home. And from their oral tellings and from their history. And so they're starting to implement many steps. And to date, we've seen many First Nations, you know, working towards those steps to find answers, find answers for their people. And um, we know that moving forward, there's still many communities that want to start the work and trying to figure out how to utilize the resources to ensure that they are taking and following every step moving forward with the um, uh, due diligence and the um, care and the sensitivity and the cultural protocols that are needed to um, work with their, their elders and their survivors. 
I'm speaking with Tecumlips Kukbi Roseanne Kazmir uh, on what is uh, the, this week, the one-year anniversary of the announcement of the discovery of 215 uh, suspected unmarked graves of children who attended the Kamloops Residential School, and just what the last year has been like, and, and what has uh, what has been um, what has helped the healing process, and both what still needs to be done as well. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk briefly just about uh, what else needs to be done to make sure that these the healing and the searching uh, continues in terms of support from the federal government, support from Canadians in general. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm speaking with Tecumlips Cookby Roseanne Kazmir uh, here on the one-year anniversary this week of an announcement that, that sent shockwaves really around the country, around the world, about the discovery of, a, of suspected 215 unmarked graves of children who attended uh, who had attended the Kamloops Residential School. Cookby uh, Kazmir, what needs to be done? I know there's still more searching to be done at that site. Uh, there's still more searching to be done at other uh, sites suspected around the country. Are you getting the help you need from the government? Are you getting the financing you need to make sure this happens and happens properly? Yes, we know that there is no roadmap for these steps that need to take place moving forward. And we know that we can't do this alone. And so we are you know, working with the efforts of the provincial government um, the federal government, and um, you know, we are um, you know continue to seek you know the resources that are needed to um, support everything that needs to take place, and um, those discussions continue. Supports have been um, put forward. We have been working towards uh, more GPR work um, within our community, and I know that we're also working with uh, collecting the records so we can um, you know, move forward with those steps as well. You spoke this week about your hope for reconciliation, which would, which would lead one to understand that you haven't seen what, exactly what you'd like to see just yet. Uh, where does that hope lie and what do you hope happens next? So what I do hope for is, is healing for our community, healing for the um, survivors and the elders that have been impacted and most importantly to give dignity to um, the unmarked graves and you know upon further investigation if if we're going to be making steps towards um, excavation and or memorialization but it's also going to be working with the cultural protocols of each of the respective communities that have been impacted so my hope is that um we continue and we'll continue working with everyone that's involved. We will continue to honor and to nurture, but we'll also continue to um, look towards those steps towards healing. And I know for our community, you know, we've talked, we've talked with many and it is about healing and what that looks like moving forward. And there's been discussions about a healing center and what that would mean and to have that cultural sensitivity it's also about the reclamation of language and culture. And it's also, you know, a lot of other things and a lot of other steps that need to take place. And so we do know that it is going to take time. And everyone has different journeys when it comes to their healing process. And when they feel like they've reconciled their own feelings with what happened with their traumas. So we know that, for everyone, it's going to be at different times. and But, you know, for us, it's about having that hope for our children and all the future generations and that they have that hope for them. 
and to move forward. So lots and lots of healing. Roseanne Casimir, thank you. I don't know whether you caught this story over the weekend, um, but police were called to Toronto Pearson Airport because of the weather. You know, there was a big storm that roared through southern Ontario on Saturday. Uh, things got so heated. People were so tense at Pearson Airport because of a combination of cancelled flights, those long delays that we're already seeing, um, as well as some baggage, missing baggage issues and so on. The police were called it uh, to try and uh, cool things down. Well, we've talked a lot about delays at airports of late. We've certainly seen them in Vancouver. There are a lot of warnings over uh, heading into the long weekend from Vancouver's airport to come early, not too early, uh, and be ready to wait. Uh, Pearson Airport, obviously the same, seeing some of it in Montreal too and elsewhere. Um, And the Montreal-based International Air Transport Association, which represents some 290 airlines in 120 countries, has seen enough. And they're sounding the alarm. This doesn't always happen. Um, they don't always wade into these issues. They're wading into this one. They're warning Ottawa that more needs to be done ahead of what is going to be busy season. It isn't yet. Uh, or it could be a long, hot, and frustrating summer for passengers arriving and departing from major airports in this country. And they say that'll have consequences. They also have some ideas on how to fix some of these problems. Joining me now is Peter Serta. He's IATA's regional vice president for the Americas, and he joins me from uh, San Juan in Puerto Rico. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I imagine uh, restart uh, and the public traveling again must be a hot topic where you are right now. No pun intended. It actually is. It's, it's, it's all about you know the industry coming together and, and, and speaking with governments on how we can effectively and responsibly uh, we start that connection, uh, having people want to travel, the summer is coming, and there's a huge amount of pinup demand, uh, both domestically and internationally. And, and really the challenge here is how do we work with our governments, one, to remove the, the last remaining uh, COVID restrictions that we have in place in many parts of, of the world. And secondly, how do we ensure that during these uh, summer, during the summer season when uh, airports are going to be full, uh, passengers are going to want to travel in a seamless manner that will have enough security and immigration uh, personnel to be able to to process passengers in a reasonable amount of time, uh, which is, you know, in some places becoming a real challenge. Tell me about the challenge, uh, Peter, because clearly IATA felt it was important enough to speak about it publicly. Um, what is the issue that you're seeing at Can- some Canadian airports and, and what is the concern? Well, in, in the case of Canada, it's, it's twofold. One is um, on the inbound, uh, where you have passengers arriving from abroad. And uh, because the uh, arrival facilities, the immigration facilities are getting full of passengers because the uh, uh, immigration officers have to do added checks, uh, making sure that the passengers have completed their arrive can uh, process correctly. Well, very quickly, we, we see these arrival halls are getting full. And as a result, when the airplane lands, if the arrival hall is full, well, passengers have to wait uh, on board until um, the area becomes available to them. So that's causing a huge um, bottleneck uh, for passengers uh, upon arrival, where uh, in some cases, it actually gets very frustrating because uh, we've had cases that the actual flight time is shorter than the amount of time that the passenger has had to wait 
on the ground to get off the airplane because immigration is full. Uh, and that's because they, uh, there's just not enough uh, officers. And secondly is the on the security side. So uh, when passengers check in and, and they're ready to get on the airplane, just going through the security checkpoint, long lines are also increasing there because, again, there's a lack of personnel. And, and at the end, this is a huge frustration uh, on the passengers want to go through a seamless p- process. They want to go fast. Um, and this is just not happening. And, and what concerns us is we, we haven't even hit the summer season. Uh, June, July, August is, is peak time in Canada. And, and we're concerned if the government doesn't take uh, more proaction, making sure that there is uh, more personnel to service uh, these uh, positions, the situation can actually worsen uh, in the summer where the uh, airlines have really uh, uh, done quite a good job in, in, in reconnecting Canada with the rest of the world. But that's going to be uh, at risk because of these uh, inefficiencies that we currently have. Is Canada unique in this? I mean, I, I came through, I was coming through Paris a little while ago. I mean, it wasn't as bad, but uh, but are we seeing the same sorts of problems everywhere or is Canada specifically a bit of a trouble spot right now? Well, we, we have seen it around the world. Um, I think the difference between Canada and other places is the, uh, the, the, the numbers in terms of how long passengers are having to wait through um, uh, on board airplanes and, and to be able to go through security checkpoints or being uh, um, vetted correctly by the immigration officer. You know, in some cases, we've gone above um, the you know, standard, uh, what should take you know, seconds to process. It could take minutes, and those minutes lead into hours. Uh, and that's the frustration. I think that is the biggest problem that we're facing in, in Canada is uh, what is going to come if we don't resolve this issue uh, in a very immediate time frame. What is the fear if this isn't fixed? Because as you mentioned, we haven't even hit busy season yet. And already we're seeing, um, you know, long lineups at certainly at the major airports of Toronto specifically, but also a bit of Vancouver, Montreal. Uh, and we're expecting more passengers. And certainly the country is expecting a lot more people to show up over the summer. So what is your fear then if this isn't fixed? Yeah, r- right now, what we've seen over the past weeks is uh, about 100,000 passengers uh per week have been uh, have seen some sort of disruption. So uh, the process for these passengers has not been seamless. It has not been uh, a regular experience. Uh, they, they've experienced long periods of wait time. Uh, and this is, you know, considering our, our low peak of the year. Uh, as we go into the summer, very quickly, the number of passengers that may be neg- negatively impacted will certainly go up if, if we do not find solutions. And, and it has a... a, a a significant impact on passengers, but also airlines, uh, particularly on the international side. Flights from from Europe or from North America, uh, usually these flights come in and and within an hour and a half, they have to turn around and go back out. Uh, So it's not only the passenger, the inbound passenger that's negatively impacted. It's also the passenger that's going to be departing internationally that's going to be impacted or several passengers that come in internationally that then need to connect on domestic flights will also misconnect. So the whole entire travel experience is going to be significantly impacted if we're not able to uh, address these um, these uh, staffing issues. As simplifying the, the current uh, uh, COVID um, uh, procedures or policies that we have in place, we, we have to uh, get to a point now with the Canadian government uh, to eliminate what is left over some of these policies that really 
at this point in time really don't make any sense. And those that do stay in place, we have to simplify them much more to make sure that, again, the passenger experience can be as as easy for the passenger as possible uh, so they don't have to wait on long lines for several minutes uh, or even hours and be asked the same question by the immigration officers. What are some of the solutions that you're proposing? Because I've read through them. They seem to make sense. And and in terms of dropping some of these uh, remaining COVID uh, rules that are in place, is Canada out of step with other countries now when it comes to some of these? Well, unfortunately, you know, Canada in this case with with COVID and how it's impacted aviation, it has been a challenge. Uh, Canadians, have, the government has been in some cases uh, very reluctant to to ease some of the restrictions that we've had in place. Canada has been one of the countries that had uh, mandated these policies for the longest period of time. Uh, we have seen proactiveness from by the uh, Canadian government over the last uh, several months, but we're now getting into a critical point of the year which is the summer season. Uh, many foreigners come to Canada for family, personal reasons, vacation, as many Canadians also take opportunities to travel abroad and throughout Canada. And this is a time where we really need government to take a leadership role, to make sure that we have the right resources in place, that the policies are going to help and not hinder uh, the travel experience once again, and, and make sure that you know, travelers are able to, to get to one point, uh, from one point to another uh, in Canada and from Canada uh, in, in an unacceptable amount of time. Uh, we, we need to be successful in this area because the industry has been locked down for way too long in Canada. Uh, travelers need and want to be able to move, uh, but currently you know, we, we run the risk that it could be a very, um, a very difficult summer if we don't have the right policies in place and, and ensure that we have the resources, both from the security and the facilitation standpoint for this uh, uptick in number of passengers that will be moving through Canada, Canadian airports. The, the staffing issue is obviously a, a challenge, and we understand the problems there. Specifically, what would you like to see done with some of the procedural stuff that could, that could be changed quite quickly, frankly? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we have a challenge is, um, you know, in terms of the uh, passengers arriving into the arrival hall. Mm-hmm. You know, many times passengers don't correctly fill the Arrive Can app, they're missing information, um, but they're all holding on. To, you know, everyone's queuing in the same type of line. And what we're asking um, the, U- the uh, Canadian government is to create different lines for, for different types of passengers. Those that have correctly filled out and completed their arrive camp uh, form should be able to move much quicker than those that have not. Uh, and we're talking about uh, those who have correctly uh, completed their form. You know, the process is anywhere between 15 and one minute. Uh, in terms of being processed. So they should be able to advance quickly. Those that need more time because they, uh, there's something wrong with the form or they have not filled it out correctly, they will take more time and then they should be processed uh, through a different type of line. So that's an easy um, uh, way out, a, a good example where we can implement certain measures very quickly that will help reduce the, the wait times that will uh, prevent more passengers have, from having to wait on board the airplane. But again, we need the government, uh, the right stakeholders, the airport, uh, the immigration security officers to work um, in such a manner that we can implement these measures uh, in a quick manner. Peter Serta, uh, it feels like time is running out on this one, and that's why you're sounding the alarm. Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. Enjoy the rest of your conference in Puerto Rico. Thank you very much uh, for the time, Ben. Appreciate it. <laughs> 
summer feels like it's here kind of on the west coast it's a bit chilly these days in vancouver and victoria but comedy's back in a big way which is great live shows back at last just for laughs in vancouver is running uh tonight through the 29th through sunday and featuring a whole bunch of big names including my next guest dana gould stand-up comedian actor writer voice artist podcaster interviewer <laughs> he's done just about everything he's appeared on the late show with david letterman jimmy kimmel uh conan here he is have a listen i'd like to start the show off with a little marital advice don't lose your wedding ring <laughs> a couple of months ago i was in one of those um what do you call it uh a divorce <laughs> I lost my ring and my address, and they say when you get married, till death do you part. So I don't so much think of it as getting divorced as that I've somehow cheated death. Dana Gould there uh, at another Just for Laughs, earlier Just for Laughs festival a few years back before the pandemic. Um, uh, also a writer for The Simpsons back in the day, a man of many, many, many talents and uh, happy to have him on the show tonight. Dana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, harder to hit a moving target. That's my theory. <laughs> no doubt, exactly. Um, it's so funny uh, to hear that that chunk of material, which was uh, uh, from the end of my last marriage... As I get ready to embark on my second one, some people never learn. Congratulations! Uh, yeah, I was, I was yeah. wondering what you were doing. Yeah, congratulations! I, I guess that'll be part of the part <laughs> of the material, obviously, since life seems to be part of uh, part of your material always. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. Basically, you deal with whatever is going on in your uh, in your life at the time. It's been it's been interesting having gone through the pandemic, having gone through you know a year and a half of. You know, people sitting in your house all the time, not talking to anybody. It's like, you know, this isn't, I've been a stand-up comedian. I've been socially isolating for my entire career. Um, but uh, you learn, uh, you know, it was interesting to get back out and perform in front of people after all that time off. It was, uh, that's why I'm really looking forward to going to the Rio because uh, you miss people. I miss, you yeah. miss a live audience. It's funny, I, 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 because I listened to that a few times because I isolated it and was watching for different... It wasn't as... I mean, I obviously enjoyed the comedy. What I enjoyed more was the reaction. It was the laughs. You know, it was, it was listening yes. to people react to what you were saying, and that made it all the more fun. I feel like we kind of lost that for a little while there. We did. And, you know, like, I did Zoom shows. People would do Zoom shows. And it's just not the same. There's nothing, there's nothing that beats just being uh in front of a live audience and getting that feedback in the in real time and uh you know hopefully it'll uh hopefully and everybody now has a everybody now has a brand new wealth of bizarre and shared experiences to talk about everybody has their pandemic stories so yeah. there's a whole wealth of stuff that you can talk about um one of the things that's happened of course of late and 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 i, I don't imagine Comedians talk about this all the time, but of course, the incident at the Oscars, I know you tweeted about it, um, the incident uh, last week as well, the week before. Um, do, do you, are you concerned at all that the mood has changed out there, or is that just simply um, journalist types getting a little carried away? We just lost Dana Gould. We'll, we'll get him back in a second. Yeah, so <laughs> interesting to hear him talk about uh, just being back in front of a live audience after all that time. Uh, one of the other things he pointed out this week, I was just looking through some of this. He's interviewed George Carlin, which in of itself is remarkable. George Carlin, of course, one of the more 
most famous, one of my favorite comedians, uh, but he's interviewed George Carlin because he was a big hero of his. He's worked on The Simpsons. He's a big Kids in the Hall fan. Um, so some Canadian comedy to talk about. But uh, but most importantly, coming up in the Just for Laughs Festival, he's playing Saturday night at the Rio starting at 7 p.m. Uh, so it should be an interesting week. Lots of different people there. Trevor Noah's there as well. Lots of different comedians taking part in uh, this Just for Laughs Vancouver show. Um, what we may do here quickly is try and get Dana back on the phone take a quick break now, unless we do have him back. And then we'll just do the rest of the half hour with Dana Gould. As soon as we can, uh, we can hook back up. I only hope that when I do die, <laughs> I have the presence of mind to summon whoever is with me down to my bedside. So I can say in those last moments, I buried two million dollars <laughs> underneath <laughs> the only problem is you have to time it just right <laughs> otherwise you have to lie there and pretend that you're dead <laughs> dana gould again uh we've we've got him back um, i was worried <laughs> i'd offended you dana you just hung up no uh, i hasn't see, happened to i assumed <laughs> You thought that you defended me. I assumed that you just got bored and hung up. <laughs> well, neither. So I'm glad you're back. Um, so we, That's yeah, the beauty again, of just... live performing is I won't just drop in the middle of it. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, so yeah, it was, again, nice to be back in front of an audience after some after some pandemic time. I was talking earlier about, because I was watching your interview with George Carlin. I know you're a big George Carlin fan. He feels even more relevant today than he did 20 years ago. I know that sounds odd, but um, no, it's amazing it, how his jokes keep popping up. It is amazing. In fact, I don't know if you've seen the documentary that HBO has made about him. It's two parts called George Carlin's American Dream and they just showed the first part. And that is the amazing thing about George Carlin is he, he was so ahead of his time. And especially now, here's a guy that was my hero growing up. I mean, he's the reason I wanted to become a comedian. And this guy reinvented himself in the early 70s as that sort of the hippy-dippy guy. And then in the early, late 80s, early 90s, reinvents himself again as this social critic and the stuff that he was doing in those specials in the early 90s to the mid 90s yeah he's talking about today he wasn't even talking about what was going on then he's talking about today every time a news story breaks you can find a piece of george carlin's material that that appeals to it and that's you know that's the goal i i think that people look at uh, as the goal i know a lot of the stuff that i do i hear myself the bit that you just played i can hear george carlin in that stuff. Uh, I, I can see where he influenced me. Yeah, you had a funny conversation, a funny exchange. Because I did, journalists do this too, as you know, because you, you're you're a journalist yourself. At times, you do lots of interviews, um, writing notes and keeping notes about good ideas, like a good story idea or a good joke idea. I didn't realize that comedians write down a good idea and then will go back to it years later because it'll be relevant. Yes. Like they'll find the time for that line. Yeah, or I'll I'll. Uh, I keep a notepad by my bed and I'll have an idea like and I'll scribble it down in the dark and then I'll and then I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be like honey what was submarine toast I, I haven't written down here I don't know what it means 
<laughs> I can't read my own writing, so it makes it even worse when I do that. So I'm like, what, just, yeah. scribble, just to scribble. Uh, it's funny because you also worked on another on another show uh, that is famed for for predicting the future, The Simpsons. Uh, you worked on <laughs> yeah. The Simpsons for a long time. That must have been that must have been quite the experience uh, coming from stand up comedy into into that room. Yeah, it was it was a uh, it was because when I started to work at The Simpsons. I was already an established comedian. I had done Letterman and I had an album and a lot of TV. You know, I'd been on Seinfeld. I'd done a lot of stuff. And I starred in a lot of pilots uh, for television series. As I used to say, I had my hand in more failed pilots than an Air Force proctologist. And uh, what I found over the years is that I enjoyed writing them more than acting in them. The acting in them was almost an afterthought. And so I decided to focus just on writing. By that time, I just got married, just bought a house, and the idea of just being a regular person with a job seemed very appealing. And uh, I was very, 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 very fortunate to get hired at The Simpsons. But, you know, I go into that room, and I, you know, I was a minor celebrity as a, you know, there's the A list and the B list. I was the L list. But, uh, they're That's their not own true, world, course, and, you know, yeah. I really had yeah. to sublimate my own ego and sort of learn, learn the ropes. And it, uh, you know, it took six months just to figure out how to write the, their, their algorithms for lack of a better term to figure out how to write jokes for the show. And then what's really interesting about it is however, wherever you are, you end up writing about yourself. The first episode I wrote was in season 13 it was called Homer the Mo, and it was about Homer taking over Moe's bar while Moe was out of town. And it was based on my dad, who was a bartender when I was a kid. You know, it's like right. you go all that way, and then you end up just telling a story that is about yourself. It's very interesting. And then I know you wrote an episode about uh, when they go to China to adopt. That's also something that you've done as well. Um, so, I yeah, did, it's interesting. and that yeah, episode yeah. is banned in Hong Kong. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is quite irreverent. I've watched it. <laughs> I at least watched <laughs> yeah. sections of it. It, it is, uh, it is quite irreverent. Um, if you yeah, are in to... Hong Kong and you want to watch that episode, you can't. No way. No way. Yeah. What did you learn? To, what did you learn? To, I mean, you've done so much different stuff over the years. Uh, in many ways you've reinvented yourself in different careers. What's it been like? What do you think when you, when you hit the stage in front of a live audience, what do you take from all that experience? Or do you just go back mm -hmm. to doing sort of the stand-up routine that you've sort of worked out and, and, or do you share a lot of what you've learned over the years? Oh, with, no, uh, with the well, yeah. You know, what I've tried to do is ex it, to do as many different things so that I can never really excel in any of them. <laughs> 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 I just want to be mediocre in seven things. Uh, no, what I found is, you know, I was a stand-up comedian. That's what I did. And, and that's what I still consider myself. I'm a stand-up comedian who writes or I'm a stand-up comedian who might act in something, but I'm really just a stand-up comedian at heart. Um, I make my living as a writer now, and that allows me to do stand-up when I, when I want to, where I want to, I'm still writing constantly the way I always have as a stand-up. I don't know how to do anything else. Even, you know, I'm working on a TV series right now. I'm finishing writing a movie right now. I'm still doing stand-up. It's, what I do to stay sane, you know, I have to kind of go out there and, and do it. 
Um, I did it last night here in L.A. I'll do it Saturday night at the Rio in Vancouver. And it sort of keeps me sane. I'm very lucky that my, uh, you know, my hobby is other people's jobs that I, because of my other career as a writer, I can really just do it because I love it. And that's that's a very fortunate place to be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you've worked you worked really hard. At, it, it's it's sometimes it's tough to jump into things you're not going to be particularly good at at the beginning and try them out again, like writing for a, writing for The Simpsons, for instance. Oh, uh, it was, so, oh, I mean, it was terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Starting <laughs> because also it's like they're the it's The Simpsons. It's like uh, did you watch Get Back? I uh, yeah, I did the, the I did yes. You know yeah. when you see Billy Preston when he walks in and he sits yeah. down at the keyboards like. Okay, I guess I'm playing with the Beatles today. That's yeah. what it's like. <laughs> it's like yeah, no I don't want to be the guy that ruins the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but you had worked, I mean, I guess it was a very different environment when you worked with Ben Stiller back in the early 90s because you were all buddies, right? And um, the Ben yeah. Stiller show, yeah. excellent show. That uh, show but, was, but that would, yeah, that show was staffed in his living room. We were the people over his house hanging out. When he got the word that the show got picked up, (laughs) that was just an extension of my social life. Uh, The Simpsons was, I went in and I was, you know, the new, the new fish. Well, it was, um, you've done a lot of other things recently though. I mean, you, you, you adapt a lot. So you've been doing podcasts. I watch a a movie review you did of a great movie from the eighties called how to get ahead in advertising, which I haven't seen in a long time and have to watch again. Um, so it must, I mean, you really seem to be able to just kind of dabble and do the things you like to do. Talk about the things you like to talk about the whole podcasting YouTube, uh, phenomenon must've offered you some Liberty too, to just be able to talk about what you want to talk about. Yeah, you know, I've all, my passion in life, you know, outside of, you know, my comedy career and stuff is, as a kid, I'm just a movie guy. I'm not really into sports. I love monster movies and horror movies and, you know, weird, weird cult movies and, and punk rock. And, you know, that was my area of interest. And uh, I just, the great thing about having a podcast, which I've had a podcast now that Dana Gould hour for 11 years, never an hour. Um <laughs> But it allowed me to just explore the areas that I enjoy. And so in that regard, it's not really work. You know, it's a lot like the late, great Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, The Amazing Colossal Podcast. No one's paying me to do my podcast, so I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. And, you know, I love to talk about just weird, obscure movies. Right, you know, right now I'm talking about, and the one, the new one I'm doing, Soylent Green, the Charlton Heston oh, cannibalism I've seen science that. fiction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, and there's, there's a classic for stuff. you. I, yeah, I like, I, you know, and it it might not be for everybody, but I'm not out there. I don't have to sell vitamin supplements, and I'm not. Uh, I and I try to keep it in the way that uh, it, it's. If you like this stuff, it's there to talk about. I'm not. I'm not interested in socioeconomic division for my own personal thing. There's plenty of that and you know where to go and get it. Not what I'm into. I always love Soylent Green because it went through that phase where the first time I saw it, it was awful. It was just truly horrendous. We watched it because it was so bad. And now it's, you know, now it's a classic because it's a classic. uh, It just is. Yeah. And the Omega Man. He made the Omega Man yes. and Soylent Green. About the uh, one, he's the only person on Earth. The other one, the Earth is over. Neither one of them worked in the time, and they're both classics now, which is they're amazing. Great. 
so yeah. uh, tell me a bit about about just about. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I've been to comedy shows, but uh, what can fans expect, or what can people expect on on Saturday? What's um, without giving away uh, anything? But uh, uh, no, I, I guess fine. you have. I will, you know, it's. I'm talking about the stuff that's going on in my life at the moment. And I'll give you an example of something that uh, I'll probably discuss only because it happened for real. I uh, I made a mistake the other day and called my brother. Uh, ah. I have four brothers, three of whom I like, one of whom is kind of a jerk. <laughs> and, uh, I'll, let, I'll let you guess which brother is a police officer. But it's that thing where you call the wrong brother, and now I'm stuck on the phone trying to think of what to say because I can't just go, oh, I meant to call the other one and hang up. You have to pretend you wanted to talk to him. And so I literally was talking about my daughter. I said, well, he has kids and I have kids. I'll talk about kids for two minutes and I'll get off the phone. And I say, well, we got Eleanor, my daughter. We got her vaccinated, so she has all of her shots and all of her boosters now. And my brother literally says, not a lie. Well, we're not going to do that around here. We're going to keep our DNA intact. So funny thing is my daughter, Eleanor is adopted because I can't get far enough away from my DNA. (laughs) You look at why did I adopt? Let me look at my family, religious weirdo, gun nut, biker, boozer, dead tooth, too many cats. The guy who talks to his truck, I think I adopted because genetically I'm a poison factory. You know, there's a reason these things happen. And, uh, it's, it's, he's a, you know, he's an anti-vaxxer. And what are you going to say? You have to deal with these people in your life. And his reasoning is, yeah. yeah. And his reasoning is, well, I don't know how it works. Exactly. That's why we have people smarter than you. (laughs) So we can have fun stuff like airplanes and heart surgery. I don't know how zippers work, but every day I put <laughs> my faith in the science. Peter <laughs> <laughs> Gould, the Rio in Vancouver, Saturday, 7 p.m. It'll be great to have you back in uh, in a country full of comedians. It's always fun to have uh, to I, have one from uh, just a little bit, you know, Boston. You know, I'm from Montreal, so not too far away. There you go. Yeah, just down the hill. I, could, I know who Ken Dryden is. We could have there that conversation. We'll do, we'll do it next time. Data no, thank I, yeah, you so much. I love, uh, I, really, I love Vancouver. I'm really looking forward to coming up. And thanks for having me on. Sorry about the technical glitch back then. Not at all. Happens all the time. Thanks for thanks for calling back. I appreciate it. <laughs> of course. There you go. Nineteen kids killed. Two teachers. Turns out all of them, I believe, from the same class. So grade four, ten year olds. Um, it appears the gunman barricaded himself in that classroom and began shooting, uh, using an AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle that he had bought, uh, not long after he turned 18, he bought two of them. Actually, they found another one in his car. Uh, Lieutenant Christopher Oliveras says all of the victims again, were in the same fourth grade classroom at Robb elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. He told the today show today that police and other responders, first responders tried to help people escape. He said, I'm going to shoot my grandmother. The second post was, I shot my grandmother. The third post, maybe less than 15 minutes before arriving at the school, was, I'm going to shoot an elementary school. Okay, that was not uh, Lieutenant Alvarez. That was actually uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott talking about uh, some social media messages that had been left by the student. Um, emotions high 
anger high today in Texas. A lot of questions about how this could have happened. The governor talking about mental health issues. A lot of people talking about gun control, including uh, Democrat Beto O'Rourke, who's running for governor against Abbott, uh, Greg Abbott. Uh, he said today that uh, that something more needs to be done to prevent these shootings in the future instead of empty promises. This is on all of us if we do not do something, and I am going to do something, and I'm not alone. The people of Texas are with us. The majority of the people of Texas are with us, but we've got to stand up to this, or we just accept this theater and business as usual, and we accept the next shooting. Candidate for governor there, Beto O'Rourke, uh, speaking after he'd been thrown out of that press conference uh, that uh, the governor had held earlier. Uh, so what is the mood in Texas now, a state renowned for its lax gun laws, uh, contending with yet another mass shooting? Three major ones in the last five years alone have left 69 dead, including 19 grade four students. Joining me now is Lisa Falkenberg. She's the opinion editor and a Pulitzer Prize winner with the Houston Chronicle. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I suppose it's, it's one never gets used to these sorts of horrific events, but what has the mood been like in Texas? This is the third one in, in about five years now. Yes. Um, you do never get used to it. And when you have children, um, it makes it even more painful because you're able to, on some level, empathize with what the parents must be going through who thought they were leaving their kids off in the morning um, in a place that was safe and would never see them again. So it is a big state and there's a lot of different emotions right now, a lot of different um, conclusions that people are reaching. And, but we all share in the grief of our fellow Texans in Uvalde. We're learning more today about the kids, uh, I gather, and more about about what happened. Uh, What have we found out today? And and, and what kind of questions is that leading to? Well, the the death toll just, you know, kept mounting. So we've got 19 children and um, including their teacher, in addition to their teacher and another adult that we're told were killed and also shot is the suspect's uh, grandmother. Uh, There are some other children who are still in hospitals, and I believe one who was critical has been moved to Sirius, and two of the other children are are progressing and and are not in a critical situation. So that's good news. Uh, We're still trying to understand what could motivate uh, somebody to do something like this. Our governor today said that you know, you've got to have mental issues if you do something like this. And um, we're some people are quick to always bring, uh, you know, the mental health component into it. But we know what all of these shootings have in common, and that's that guns were were used for the job. And so a lot of different things can enrage someone or cause them to think that this horrific act is the right thing to do at the time. But in our society, especially in Texas, we seem to think it's okay to make it easier for these people by making it easier to get the weapons that make this evil more efficient. Because the suspect, I understand, for his 18th birthday, not long ago, uh, managed to get his hands on two of these automatic weapons, one of which was used, we, we, we gather, in the crime, in the attack. Right. 
it, it must raise such a debate about about gun laws and the availability of guns in a state like Texas that is so renowned for its loose gun laws. You would think you would you would love for that to be the case that there is actually you know a really serious debate going on but despite all of the many 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 people who are enraged to want action on our gun laws um, at least to have sensible gun laws <laughs> ones that aren't just getting loosened every single session by the legislature um, you would think that there would be a groundswell of support to tighten those laws but it's not what we're seeing. I mean, this weekend, the National Rifle Association is having their annual meeting and in Houston, where I live. And, um, you know, it's expected to be attended by some of the top um, elected officials in Texas and who represent Texas, including the governor, Governor Greg Abbott, and uh, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz. So... Every time we have one of these shootings, El Paso, Odessa, Santa Fe, uh, now Uvalde, the conversation becomes about the specific facts of the case. Well, this particular person got the gun this way or this particular person, uh, you know, followed. Anyway, it, it just becomes this conversation where you just get into the weeds and try to figure out how Texas gun laws weren't at play or weren't to blame. Those are just, those are important questions to ask, but our overall message on the editorial board is look at the pattern. We know that more guns anywhere cause more gun deaths. I don't personally believe that the United States is a more violent place than other um, countries. I believe that we're more deadly because of the readily accessible weapons that make killing more efficient and easier. If we did something about the gun problem, then suicides would be less successful and attempts to shoot children in their classroom would be less successful. You would think it was. You'd think this would be a wake-up call to some extent. You would think. You know, I. I, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I just. I just wrote it in a piece. I. Um, we have two choices here. We have uh, pessimism and and optimism and. Um, I had somebody tell me in an interview last week in an unrelated subject, he said, um, I choose optimism because that's the only path to change. It's the only hope. It's the only way out. And so as a journalist, you know, as, a, as an American, as a Texan, of course, I share the anger, the frustration out there over these shootings, but I cannot share in the despair. I have to believe that Texans, sensible Texans, many of whom want to close our loopholes on background checks, for instance, in Texas, that they will look at this and say, there's got to be something that we can do, that they will either 
if they're Republicans, that they will call up their state legislature, le legislators and senators and Congress people and argue, or if they're Democrats, that they will go and vote. They've never voted before for somebody who, who will take action and protect our children and our citizens in general. And if they're moderates, that they will decide you know, even if they're, for instance, with Beto O'Rourke, who's running against our, our governor as a Democrat, if there's something about his politics they don't like, but this particular issue moves them to vote for him because he's the one promising action, then go do it because something needs to happen. Lisa Falkenberg, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thank you for having me. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.